This is Pain Reframe. Well, welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Pain Reframed. Uh, my colleague, friend, and co-host, Tim Flynn, and I have a couple articles that we want to cover that recently came out that, that really are important to update us on sort of the state of affairs on opioid prescriptions. So, Tim, great to have you here. Always good to be on a call with you. Uh, great to be here as well, Jeff. A beautiful day in northern Colorado, and uh, hopefully uh, you're having the same your way. Yeah, no, it's gorgeous over here on this side of 25. I was looking over. I can see the mountains here out of the window. I was thinking about getting up there, but uh, hopefully some of that to come soon to enjoy the mountains. But I want to dive in, Tim, and chat about on my end and then pass it over to you for the New England Journal of Medicine article. I'm going to chat about this JAMA Network Open Access article that just came out. A bunch of MD, PhD folks out of Atlanta, Georgia. And the title of the article was Trends and Patterns of Geographic Variation in Opioid Prescribing Practices by State, United States, 2000. 2006 through 17. And what's unique about this article is that it's diving really into the specifics of state-by-state -state practices. So for those of you who have been following sort of opioid prescription changes over the past 15 years, a lot of it has been from the national level, whereas this paper dove in and looked at the real specific state-to-state. -state. And so the big things you want to be focusing on are, you know, what are the concerns for overdose? What are the concerns for prescription sort of methods and patterns? So I'm going to start off by reading an article, a paragraph right from the article to kind of get everyone dialed into what we're worried about. And so that paragraph is, and I quote, the risk of opioid use disorder, overdose, and death increases as prescription opioids are taken in higher dosages, for longer periods of time, or as extended release in long-acting formulations. So of those, duration of use is the strongest predictor of opioid use disorder and overdose. Each additional week of use has been associated with a 20% increased risk for the development of an opioid use disorder. Dosage also important. Overdose risk is dosage dependent. So doubling from a 50 to 99 morphine milligram equivalents per day and increasing risk up to ninefold when you get above 100 morphine milligram equivalents per day compared to a dose at 20 MMEs or less. Finally, use of extended release in long-acting agents also increases risk. So what we're really looking at is our concern being higher dosage, for longer periods of time in the use of extended release formulas. So those are kind of our big concerns from a prescription standpoint. So what the article found was some encouraging things and then some not as encouraging. So on the encouraging side, if you look at the years 2010 to 2015, we saw decreases in overall opioid prescriptions. And that was following a big rise from 2006 through 2010. We saw an even bigger decrease in 2015 through 2017. So across these 12 years, if you look at the whole state of affairs from 2006 to 2017, the MME per person in 44 states decreased below those original levels in 06 by 12.8%. So overall, we are seeing a reduction in the overall quantity of opioids that are being prescribed. That being said, you still have to understand the state of affairs. One of the quotes from the article that certainly caught my eye was that in 2017, pharmacies filled enough opioid prescriptions to theoretically provide every U.S. resident with five milligrams of hydrocodone bititrate every four hours around the clock for three weeks. So while it is on going the right direction, the overall quantity, even after that decrease, is still very significant. So I think one of the encouraging things is we're seeing an overall reduction of amount of opioids prescribed. 
One of the interesting things when you dive in is that we're seeing an actual increase in the geographic inequality gap. So what we're seeing is that overall prescription rates are going down. But what we're seeing is they're being condensed in certain areas now. So four states in particular, Tennessee, Oklahoma, Delaware, and Alabama, we're seeing a lot of geographic inequality there and seeing a lot of increases in condensation of where these things are being prescribed, which I think speaks to a larger issue of sort of state-by-state evaluation, state-by-state programs as far as being able to sort of get this opioid epidemic under wraps. So geographic inequity um, actually on the rise um, versus on the decline. Additionally, duration. So the mean prescription duration increased substantially over the 12 years and very little among states. So while we saw a reduction in overall amount of opioid prescriptions, the duration of the prescriptions has actually increased about 38% from 2006 to 2017. As I mentioned earlier, it is duration, adding those weeks onto the prescription, that is one of the biggest concerns. So an upward national trend in the prescribing rate of prescriptions for a duration of 30 or more days, that increase has been 40.2% total, 3% annually from 06 to 17. So one of the author's conclusions was that, you know, overall, we are seeing some improvements in quantity of prescriptions, but we're also seeing some elongation of prescriptions. And because duration is the number one thing tied to addiction, um, they really want to see that looked at more intensively as we go forward. So Tim, those were some of the big findings. It was a wonderful article. It's open access. And I think it gives a really good sort of snapshot um, across the country. Any thoughts on your end with that? Well, yeah. And I think before I jump into those thoughts, I'd maybe talk about, again, this paper that came out essentially two days after that in the New England Journal of Medicine. And this paper was entitled, Initial Opioid Prescriptions Among U.S. Commercially Insured Patients from 2012 to 2017 by Zhu and colleagues. What they did in this paper, they basically looked from July 2012 to December 2017 of essentially those that were in the Blue Cross Blue Shield database across the country. Their sample was 63 million enrollees who had not initially used opioids. And what they're really looking at was that initial opioid prescription among those. And I guess encouragingly, like in your article, they, they saw a decline in the initial prescription of opioids from 2012, 1.63% of enrollees would get an opioid down to just under 1.75%. So there clearly was a reduction in the initial prescribing of opioids. And if, as you've mentioned, you know, the, the risk goes up with longevity, but the risk of once you have been prescribed an opioid, obviously you are at higher risk just by that of opioid dependence just by that first prescription. Now, some of the interesting things I saw was, you know, again, they mentioned about the increasing duration, increasing the likelihood of dependency. And they also found that in this sample that the population of enrollees, you're more likely to be given a prescription if you're between 45 and 64. So again, this was not a Medicare population. They were excluded. So it was commercially insured below 64. And the higher likelihood was between the ages of 45 and 64. And also if you're a female. So the female gender was more likely to be prescribed. Now, over the five-year period, though, they identified 89 million opioid prescriptions of which nearly 11 million were new prescriptions. 
I think that requires a pause. 11 million new prescriptions of an opioid drug during that time frame. And they went on to look about, okay, well, yes, we are uh, doing a little bit better in decreasing that initial opioid prescription, but how are we doing in that longevity? As you mentioned, the longer prescriptions are worse, and what they found was nearly six out of 10 had a greater than three-day supply of initial prescribing. And that's really the CDC guidelines came out when it comes to to an acute pain episode, a three-day supply is recommended. And they found, again, nearly six out of 10 on initial prescription had a greater than that. And they found just under 20% had a greater than a seven-day supply on their initial prescription. So again, they, you know, some positive things that overall, we're starting to see a reduction over the last five-year period, but continually, even on initial prescription, there continues to be some longer prescribing habits out there. The other thing they noted throughout the study period that the provider types that were more likely to provide a longer duration prescription was actually the primary care provider. The PCPs Mm. uh, actually were responsible for more of the longer prescription in that population, which I found quite, I guess, surprising in many ways. And I would just be curious to, which this paper does not discusses what was paired with that. Were there any of the CDC recommended alternative treatments for these people that came in with pain conditions? Or was it just an opioid prescription? Or was it that coupled with, whether it be physical therapy, chiropractic, massage therapy, or something of low risk? So I guess in summary, in general, we're seeing some slow nudging downward in overall prescriptions initially, but the numbers are still overwhelming and we're still seeing a lot of longer duration first prescriptions in those that have never had an opioid prescription before. Yeah. And Tim, like you said, I mean, as we kind of step back and kind of evaluate what these two articles sort of brought to light, as we see these these longer durations kind of being one of the primary focuses, just because it is what put, seems to be putting folks at greater risk of an issue. I wonder, like you said, not only what other sort of modalities were paired in or packaged into that initial prescription, but I wonder about the messaging. You know, from our perspective, when when we do passive treatments in the physical therapy clinic, we always think about making sure the patient knows that, you know, these are things to create gateways into your self-efficacy and into loading programs and into really getting after things that are going to make all these changes stick, right? Like the passive stuff is is useful, but it's to get after a bigger change. And I, I wonder, and, you know, Dr. Adam Ryan, who's now one of our co-hosts, is going to comment on this episode. So it'll be great to hear his thoughts, but I wonder how they're packaging that and saying, look, you know, this is just to get the edge off, to make it tolerable. But the things that we really want to be thinking about long-term are are blank and kind of setting that expectation that this isn't going to be a long-term thing. You know, it'd be so interesting if the packaging on pharmaceuticals that surround pain would not be coupled with that message you just said. You know, the big bold letters suggesting that this is a temporary solution to get you started. And that message from day one being consistent in the packaging and in every provider that is in contact with that patient. That would, that would seem to be a very, very positive thing. I mean, Tim, never in my life have I heard on a pharmaceutical commercial, this is intended to give you an initial stimulus to move on to to more long-term lifestyle changes that can be permanent. 
Yeah, and it's just so frustrating. And I, I do wonder with these, with a lot of the lawsuits, uh, of course, Purdue Pharmaceutical now is a declared bankruptcy. A little bankruptcy, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, but you wonder if, because these states have received money, that part of that messaging might be around that, that a lot of the public health messaging suggests that anytime these drugs are used, there's a, this other message about physical activity and about, you know, risks being drawn down substantially when we only use small duration use of this type of drug. Yeah. And Tim, I hope that people, you know, realize and give themselves enough credit to be a part of their own decision-making process, right? I mean, I hope those of you who are out there dealing with pain or your loved ones are, like you realize that you're able to take these articles that are coming out in journals like the Journal of the American Medical Association and certainly assimilating the information that, hey, if you take these things, every additional week increases risk by 20%. I mean, if you or a loved one are getting a prescription that is multiple weeks, I hope that you're going in armed with this information to either say, hey, I'm not sure I want to be doing that, or I'm not sure I want my my wife or my father-in-law or, or whoever to be going on additional weeks because the, the risk increases. I think the more you know, the more you can be a part of that shared decision-making process and maybe prevent some of this stuff from being armed with knowledge. Yeah. And with that in mind, I don't know if you saw the New York Times opinion piece on March 16th. It was an excellent article by Dr. I believe Waresh, who is a cardiologist, but it was titled, Is Pain a Sensation or an Emotion? And uh, and it was really well done. I mean, it leads off with the U.S. uses a third of the world's opioids, but a fifth of Americans still say they suffer from chronic pain. And But it goes on to really talk about what we do on this show, again, about the nature, the complexity of pain, and that it is a, a biopsychosocial phenomenon. And it was talks a lot about the altered signal processing and about the response to sensation is altered and really talks a lot about perception and about emotion and very much about, you know, having this individual who is the physician, you know, had had a quote unquote bad back and talks a lot about, you know, the fact that, you know, physical therapy that doesn't just manipulate joints but also addresses the context pain comes alive in, Mm. encourages optimism and builds emotional resilience has found to be more effective. I mean, so they basically, right here in the New York Times, I just hope a lot of uh, lay people and healthcare providers just read that piece because it really is a, a succinct piece on, you know, really the complexity of pain and how we do know how to treat it better. You know, we have a lot to learn, but we do know how to get after it better. And it doesn't start with the prescription of a pill. Tim, I love that you're bringing that up. I did see that piece. We'll make sure it gets in the show notes because, you know, the one thing that I don't think anybody denies is wherever you might wrestle with that question of, you know, is it emotional and and, and to what level? I think the one thing we all agree with is it's at least biopsychosocial. I mean, there's at least multivariate. And one thing nobody can argue is that a pill is going to address the psychosocial components. And so at least understanding that the whole solution can't be there, I think is empowering in its own right and gets you realized that you've got to zoom out and try to identify some of those other key variables and make it a multi-pronged approach. 
You know, it's throughout our entire healthcare system. You know, like we say, we know it's societal, but it's also the health, the sick system that, you know, that our chronic diseases require that biopsychosocial model. They require the fact that, yes, there may be a role for the pharmaceuticals, but without behavior change, without reframing the disorder and how that affects me as a human being and how it affects my relationship with my family and society, uh, we're just doing a disservice to all these disorders. And that's why I really feel like, you know, that there is an awakening of sorts out there that you just feel that people know that how can we continue to get sicker and feel worse each year when we're spending more? Something is amiss. And to me, I hope that this epidemic, that part of it will be not just an opening up of, of our understanding with, of pain, but an opening up of our understanding with health and that what we are doing to help with chronic pain is the same things that we will do to help with overall health and wellness. Oh, well, Tim, I, I can't wrap it up better than that. I mean, let's leave it right there. And I hope that our listeners will take these articles and take that New York Times piece and share them in their families and bring them to their physician's offices and open up dialogue that sort of forces everyone to recognize these different components and face them bravely. And I think it's time to stop trying to, to hide behind a pill or, or seek a solution in a pill, but instead um, go for the comprehensive solution. I couldn't agree more, Jeff. And I think with that, we'll make it a wrap and hope each and every one of our listeners have a most exceptional day. Pain Reframed is brought to you by our sponsor, the International Spine and Pain Institute. Check out their transformative pain science programming at ispinstitute.com.